0: Without owning something over an extended period of time, like a few years, where one has a chance to take responsibility for one's recommendations, where one has to see one's recommendations through all the action stages and accumulate scar tissue from mistakes, and pick oneself up off the ground and dust oneself off, one learns a fraction of what one can. Coming in and making recommendations without owning the results without owning the implementation, I think is a fraction of the value and a fraction of the opportunity to learn and get better. Those are words from Steve Jobs. Specifically there, he's talking about the concept of skin in the game. That is exactly what we will be covering today. We'll be learning from the wisdom of Nassim Taleb from the book Skin in the Game. I found this to be the most concise definition of skin in the game from Nassim Taleb. If you have the rewards, you must also get some of the risks, not let others pay the price of your mistakes. And a bit further on, do not mistake skin in the game as defined here and used in this book for just an incentive problem, just having a share of the benefits, as it is commonly understood in finance. No, it is about symmetry. More like having a share of the harm. Paying a penalty if something goes wrong. I took a note and I like to describe that skin in the game reduces the divergence between action and cheap talk. And here's what I mean by that from Nassim Taleb. Skin in the game, applied as a rule, reduces the effect of the following divergences that grew with civilization. Those between action and cheap talk, which is what I just mentioned. Consequence and intention. Practice and theory. Honor and reputation. Expertise and charlatanism. Concrete and abstract. Ethical and legal. Genuine and cosmetic. Merchant and bureaucrat. Entrepreneur and chief executive. Strength and display. Love and gold digging. He goes on to give more examples, but I think you and I can get the gist of what Nassim Taleb's talking about here. Throughout the book, Nassim Taleb pulls from parables as well as mythology from the Greeks, the Romans, as well as other cultures. And in the beginning of the book here, I found this mythology, this story, to be interesting as a supporting argument for what he describes as knowledge being tested by reality and knowledge having to be tested by reality. And to start us off, we learn about this parable of Antaeus. Antaeus is the son of, I believe he's a half-son of Poseidon. He's a a semi-giant. And any time a passerby would encounter him, he forced them to wrestle him. And the thing about Antaeus was that he was invincible so long as his feet made contact with the ground, and one day Hercules uh, was also challenged. It's also helpful to understand that part of Antaeus' motivations for challenging people is that he was building a temple for his father, Poseidon, and his temple that he's building in honor of his father is built from the skulls of his victims. And Hercules is also challenged, but unlike others that have challenged Antaeus, Hercules manages to lift him off the ground and beats him. And continuing off of that story from the book, we retain from this first vignette, just like Antaeus, you cannot separate knowledge from contact with the ground. Actually, you cannot separate anything from contact with the ground. And the contact with the real world is done via skin in the game, having an exposure to the real world and paying a price for its consequences good or bad. The abrasions of your skin guide your learning and discovery, a mechanism of organic signaling, what the Greeks called pathmata, mathmata, which translates to guide your learning through pain. And a bit further on, the knowledge we get by tinkering via trial and error, experience and the workings of time, in other words, contact with the earth, is vastly superior to to that obtained through reasoning. Something self-serving institutions have been very busy hiding from us. Okay, so I picked that one out because I have mentioned in past episodes about the influence Charlie Munger has had on my life. And one of his expressions that I consistently think about is, learning is changing your behavior. And I think that's particularly relevant here in that The reason why learning is changing your behavior is because ultimately I think changing your behavior is contact with reality and it's only through application of your learning and it's only through direct application do you have a sense of and a connection with true reality of what you have learned. Otherwise, it's all just theory And that's particularly why I made the connection there, and it's something that you and I can learn going forward and take away from the concept of skin in the game as well. Okay, I want to start us off with a definition of bureaucracy, which I think will set us up for this next section here from Nassim Taleb. Bureaucracy is a construction by which a person is conveniently separated from the consequences of his or her actions. This next section is called... I am dumb without skin in the game let us return to pathmata mathmata learning through pain and consider its reverse learning through thrills and pleasure people have two brains one when there is skin in the game one when there is none skin in the game can make boring things less boring when you have skin in the game Dull things like checking the safety of the aircraft because you may be forced to be a passenger and it cease to be boring. If you are an investor in a company, doing ultra-boring things like reading the footnotes of a financial statement where the real information is to be found becomes, well, almost not boring. Throughout the book, Taleb is very critical of this notion of interventionism, Policy making that typically happens in places like DC. From his perspective, I think the best way to understand it is through what he calls via negativa. And so I want to read this part to you. Systems learn by removing parts via negativa. And the definition via negativa, the principle that we know what is wrong with more clarity than what is right, and that knowledge grows by subtraction. Also, It is easier to know that something is wrong than to find the fix. Actions that remove are more robust than those that add, because addition may have unseen complicated feedback loops. Okay, and building on the principle of via negativa, we are now introduced to what's called the silver rule. You may have heard of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, And so from the book, the golden rule wants you to treat others the way you would like them to treat you. The more robust silver rule says, do not treat others the way you would not like them to treat you. More robust? How? Why is the silver rule more robust? First, it tells you to mind your own business and not decide what is good for others. We know with much more clarity what is bad than what is good. Hang on to both Via Negativa and Silver Rule because we'll come back to that further on in the book. But first I want to introduce you to some advice from Taleb. I I wrote a note called Actions Speak Louder Than Words and you'll see why here. From Taleb. We are much better at doing than understanding. You may not know in your mind where you're going, but you know it by doing. And so the explanation here from Taleb is that even economics is based on the notion of revealed preferences. Uh, So to pause there, I've heard of this concept of stated preferences versus revealed preferences. The way I understand it is that stated preferences are what you claim as the things that you want, whereas revealed preferences are the actions that you actually take to help articulate or help explain on what your true intentions and what your true desires are. And so building off of that, what people think is not relevant. You want to avoid entering the mushy, soft, and self-looping discipline of psychology. People's explanations for what they do are just words, stories they tell themselves, not the business of proper science. What they do, on the other hand, is tangible and measurable, and that's what we should focus on. As you can as you can already tell, Taleb likes to he doesn't mince his words. He takes a lot of shots at not only things he doesn't agree with, but also direct shots at people that he is not fond of. And I will leave a lot of those out because I think the the underlying points and the underlying principles are more important for us to learn from. Um, but nonetheless, I do want to call out that he is uh, a very brash individual and his persona even comes out in, in places like uh, social media as well. But first, I want to take us further into a section I've called soul in the game, sort of from Taleb. Anything you do to optimize your work, cut some corners, or squeeze more efficiency out of it and out of your life will eventually make you dislike it. Artisans have their soul in the game. And explaining that point, primo, artisans do things for existential reasons first, financial and commercial ones later. Their decision making is never fully financial but it remains financial. Secondo. They have some type of art in their profession. They stay away from most aspects of industrialization. They combine art and business. Tertio. They put some soul in their work. They would not sell something defective or even of compromised quality because it hurts their pride. Finally, they have sacred taboos. Things they would not do even if it markedly increased profitability. So far, we have been introduced to the concept of skin in the game. Supporting all of this are a set of key big ideas, the first of which is what I've called avoiding intermediaries. Let's start on that from Taleb. One of the best pieces of advice I have ever received was a recommendation by a very successful and happy older entrepreneur yasi vardi to have no assistant the mere presence of an assistant suspends your natural filtering and its absence forces you to do only things you enjoy and progressively steer your life that way by assistant here i exclude someone hired for a specific task such as grading papers helping with accounting or watering plants just some guardian angel overseeing all of your activities This is a via negativa approach. You want maximal free time, not maximal activity. And you can assess your own success according to such metric. Otherwise, you end up assisting your assistants or being forced to explain how to do things, which requires more mental effort than doing the thing itself. In fact, beyond my writing and research life, This has proved to be a great financial advice, as I am freer, more nimble, and have a high benchmark for doing things, while my peers have their days filled with unnecessary meetings and unnecessary correspondence. Building on the concept of avoiding intermediaries from the book a little further on, if you want to study classical virtues such as courage or learn about stoicism, don't necessarily look for classicists. One is never a career academic without a reason. Read the texts themselves, Seneca, Caesar, or Marcus Aurelius when possible. Or read commentators on the classics who were doers themselves, such as Montaigne, people who at some point had skin in the game, then retired to write books. And here's, I think, the key point here. Avoid the intermediary when possible, or forget about the texts, Just engage in acts of courage. The big idea of avoiding intermediaries ends with this lesson from Taleb from his own experiences. Beware of the person who gives advice telling you that a certain action on your part is good for you, while it is also good for him, while the harm to you doesn't directly affect him. So, to underscore this point, Taleb shares a story from a couple years back where he received help from a lecture agent. This individual would have handled some of the gritty details of being a speaker on tour, which Taleb was at the time, taking care of bookings, taking care of the work that goes into setting up these trips. After the work was done years later, Taleb received a letter from tax authorities related to the work that he did with speaking. And at that point, Taleb then contacted this agent saying, hey, what's going on? And that agent then had a curt, an immediate response of, "I am not your tax attorney," and so to him at that time, like this was a learning of, the advice that the individual gave was good for him. Him being the the literary agent, but the downside that came with that experience doesn't actually harm the agent. There, before I move us further on the other big ideas in this book, I want to linger on this point that he makes here side point, rather, on the nature of learning. This is actually my second time going through this book. The first time was in audiobook format back, maybe it was three years ago at this point. And as I've thought about my own reasons for rereading books and going through books multiple times, this particular point resonated with me here where he says, learning is rooted in repetition and convexity meaning the reading of a single text twice is more profitable than reading two different things once, provided, of course, that said text has some depth of content. And I'm reminded, so last week we studied the wisdom of Ben Franklin, and if you recall, Franklin had his own method of learning, particularly through virtues that he tried to cultivate, and the way he did that was he would carry with him An index card listing out all of the thirteen virtues he wanted to practice day in day out, and would mark them off any time he successfully was able to practice them. And to me, what that reinforced was this notion of repetition as a way to truly learn. Earlier, I mentioned this principle of learning is changing behavior, and I'm reminded not only from Taleb here, but also from other individuals who we've studied that. Changing behavior is also a byproduct of repetition. And so this is something that you and I can take away here is that learning is rooted in repetition and through repetition comes changing of behavior. So far in the book, we've been introduced to skin in the game in a symmetrical fashion, which is all to explain that whatever benefits you hope to accrue, you should also be prepared to take the same amount of proportional risk to receive said benefits. Now we're introduced to Taleb's other big idea, which is the minority rule. And here from the book, The Explanation of the Minority Rule, The minority rule will show us how all it takes is a small number of intolerant, virtuous people with skin in the game in the form of courage for society to function properly. And so the way he explains it is that minority rule is an asymmetric form of skin in the game and that it is not a proportional form. To help articulate the minority rule, let's learn from a couple examples here from the book and from Taleb. A strange idea hit me. The kosher population represents less than three-tenths of a percent of all residents of the United States. Yet, it appears that almost all drinks are kosher. Why? Simply because going full kosher allows the producers, grocers, and restaurants to not have to distinguish between kosher and non-kosher for liquids, with special markets, special aisles, separate inventories, different stocking sub-facilities. And the simple rule that changes the total is as follows. A kosher or halal eater will never eat non-kosher or non-halal food. But a non-kosher isn't banned from eating kosher. Or rephrased in another domain. A disabled person will not use a regular bathroom, but a non-disabled person will use the bathroom for disabled people. Another example. Do not think that the spread of automatic shifting cars is necessarily due to a majority preference. It could just be because those who can drive manual shifts can always drive automatic, but the reverse is not true. And we also have from Taleb this, what he calls, the beer-wine asymmetry and the choices made for parties. Once you have 10% or more women at a party, you cannot serve only beer. But most men will drink wine, so you only need one set of glasses if you only serve wine. Taleb even applies the minority rule to the adoption of the spoken language from the book. It all started with the asymmetric rule that those who are non-native in English know bad English, but the reverse, English speakers knowing other languages is less likely. So I took a note here, I I actually wondered if the minority rule adoption also applies to programming languages. And admittedly, I didn't do too much digging in here, but I I do think it applies in that the adoption and disadoption, if that's a real word, of programming languages also is a result of a passionate minority of individuals. And I've seen that in uh, languages like Python, as well as Rust, have come from a passionate group of individuals that have adopted in a particular subdomain, namely for Python in areas like data science, which have allowed it to gain foothold or even outside of it to become a um, dominant force rather. So I I do think it carries over and I would encourage us for you and I to think about that some more in, in identifying other areas of life where the minority rule does apply. In the meantime, though, the most important point of the minority rule is in how virtue is imposed on society, so from the book. This idea of one-sidedness can help us debunk a few more misconceptions. How do books get banned? Certainly not because they offend the average person. Most persons are passive and don't really care, or don't care enough to request the banning. From past episodes, it looks like all it takes is a few motivated activists for the banning of some books or the blacklisting of some people. The great philosopher and logician Bertrand Russell lost his job at the City University of New York owing to a letter by an angry and stubborn mother who did not wish to have her daughter in the same room as the fellow with a dissolute lifestyle and unruly ideas. The same seems to apply to prohibitions, at least to the prohibition of alcohol in the United States, which led to interesting mafia stories. And then Taleb ends, Let us conjecture that the formation of moral values in society doesn't come from the evolution of the consensus. No, it is the most intolerant person who imposes virtue on others, precisely because of that intolerance. And then we summarize this section, and Taleb ends on this note. Society doesn't evolve by consensus, voting, majority, committees, verbose meetings, academic conferences, tea and cucumber sandwiches, or polling. Only a few people suffice to disproportionately move the needle. All one needs is an asymmetric rule somewhere, and someone with soul in the game. The next big idea that Taleb articulates and lays out in Skin in the Game has to do with employment and what it means to be an employee. But before we get to that, I want to share this idea that he pulls out in this book, which is from an economist, Ronald Coase, who has uh, this thing called Coase Theory of the Firm. So I want to read this to you and then lay out some supporting arguments here from the idea of uh, Ronald Coase. An employee is, by design, more valuable inside a firm than outside of it. That is, more valuable to the employer than the marketplace. And then Coase was the first to shed light on why firms exist. And for him, him being, I I think it's confusing, but him being um, a firm or a company. Contracts can be too costly to negotiate due to transaction costs. The solution is to incorporate your business and hire employees with clear job descriptions because you can't afford to take legal and organizational bills for every transaction. And so I took a note here, which I laid out the question, why is the company the size it is? And this is an idea that I also learned from Naval Ravikant, who is an angel investor as well as an entrepreneur. He's got a lot of interesting ideas, but one that he's talked about that I hope to cover in more detail one day, is this notion of the size of a company is shrinking, uh, particularly these days as we've evolved both the way people work in digital fashion, but also in the way tooling is built. Let's use even payments as a small example, where it used to be that in order to accept payments, you had to spin up your own set of internal contracts, internal transactions, internal teams to just accept payments but now with tools like stripe with a set of apis you can now essentially call the all of the capabilities that stripe is building rather than have to incur those costs internally and so you can imagine with other sets of apis whether it is labeling whether it's legal costs Pretty soon, all of those costs are now borne externally, which means that the average size of company over the coming decades will likely shrink. I pulled that out because I thought that was an interesting side point, but it's also a good setup for the big idea from Taleb here on being an employee from the book. But consider that an employee will always have more risk, and conditional on someone being an employee, such a person will be risk averse. By being employees, they signal a certain type of domestication. Someone who has been employed for a while is giving you strong evidence of submission. Further in the book, freedom entails risks, real skin in the game. Freedom is never free. And to support his case here, um, he lays out this parable initially that in the famous tale by Ahikar, the name's not relevant. Later picked up by ASAP, then again by LaFontaine, the dog boasts to the wolf all the contraptions of comfort and luxury he has, almost prompting the wolf to enlist. Until the wolf asks the dog about his collar and is terrified when he understands its use. Of all your meals, I want nothing. He ran away and is still running. Talking about the wolf there. And then Taleb lays out the argument here. Another aspect of the dog versus wolf dilemma the feeling of false stability. A dog's life may appear smooth and secure, but in the absence of an owner, a dog does not survive. Most people prefer to adopt puppies, not grown up dogs. In many countries, unwanted dogs are euthanized. A wolf is trained to survive. Employees abandoned by their employers, as we saw in the IBM story, cannot bounce back. And so taking a pause there, when he's talking about the IBM story for a little bit back, he shares the story of when the rise of companies like IBM came about in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, This was in an era in which a lot of these big companies were the size of nation states. And that was particularly new in this time of history. And that led to this interesting way of working and the way people congregated, where in places like IBM, you had these effectively lifers, these employees that had been around for 20, 30 years working for the company, and all they saw was a future in which IBM would continue to dominate. They dressed the same, they talked the same, they adopted the same set of internal jokes and lingo. But then over the course of the 90s, as other rival firms came up, namely Microsoft, that existentially put a threat to IBM's own stability. And these lifers, these IBM employees that have been around for decades, were laid off, and Taleb makes the case that those individuals weren't properly positioned. They weren't able to find another job as easily outside of IBM because all they knew was IBM. And then Taleb lays out another argument here. What matters isn't what a person has or doesn't have. It is what he or she is afraid of losing. The more you have to lose, the more fragile you are. And then lastly, It is no secret that large corporations prefer people with families. Those with downside risk are easier to own, particularly when they are choking under a large mortgage. And of course, Most fictional heroes, such as Sherlock Holmes or James Bond, don't have the encumbrance of a family that can become a target of evil, say Professor Moriarty. So, moving on, like, Taleb also makes the case that it isn't just where you work and how your form of employment is. Even just having financial freedom isn't enough to truly be free. Having family obligations, having things of value that you could possibly lose are also uh, things that would prevent you from truly being free. And it's not to make the case that freedom is everything, but what really is that Taleb's trying to make the argument that freedom, true freedom, is very, very difficult to attain. And so another point that he makes here is that Intellectual and ethical freedom requires the absence of the skin of others in one's game, which is why the free are so rare. I cannot possibly imagine the activist Ralph Nader when he was the target of large motor companies, raising a family with 2.2 kids and a dog. The details here are missing, but uh, I think at one point Ralph Nader was making a case against large companies like General Motors and Um, He encountered a lot of threats, personal threats to both himself as well his family. Taleb's making the argument that even himself, and the only reason why he was able to do what he was, was that he didn't have uh, the conflict of other people that he had to worry about. And Taleb even makes the case here that to be free of conflict, you need to have no friends. Next, I want to introduce us to Taleb's other big idea, which is the Lindy effect. Or another way to understand the Lindy effect is that simply time is the expert. So to understand Lindy effect, let's get a glimpse into the origin story from the book. Lindy is a deli in New York, now a tourist trap, that proudly claims to be famous for its cheesecake, but in fact has been known for 50 or so years by physicists and mathematicians thanks to the heuristic that developed there. Actors who hang out there gossiping about other actors discovered that Broadway shows that lasted for, say, 100 days had a future life expectancy of 100 or more. For those that lasted 200 days, 200 more. The heuristic became known as the Lindy effect, which is why time is the expert, makes sense. Further on, in probability, volatility and time are the same. The idea of fragility helped put some rigor around the notion that the only effective judge of things is time. By things, we mean ideas, people, intellectual productions, car models, scientific theories, books, etc. You can't fool Lindy. Books of the type written by the current hotshot op-ed editor at the New York Times may get some hype at publication time, manufactured or spontaneous, but their five-year survival rate is generally less than that of pancreatic cancer. And a little bit further on what can be classified as Lindy, only the non-perishable can be Lindy. When it comes to ideas, books, technologies, procedures, institutions, and political systems under Lindy, there is no intrinsic aging and perishability. A physical copy of War and Peace can age, particularly when the publisher cuts corners to save 20 cents on paper for a $50 book. The book itself as an idea doesn't. Note that thanks to Lindy, no expert is the final expert anymore, and we do not need meta-experts judging the expertise of experts one rank below them. Fragility is the expert, hence time and survival. And I really like this maxim. Burn old logs, drink old wine, read old books, keep old friends. I really love this big idea here because I think it helps shape a lot of what we're trying to do with this podcast together, which is to learn from timeless books, timeless people, and really build a foundation of learning that isn't going to expire. And it's what I consider to be the root of all wisdom are the timeless ideas that will carry on. Speaking of timeless ideas, from the book, if you hear advice from a grandmother or elders, odds are that it works 90% of the time. So grandmother's wisdom is Lindy. And speaking of reading old books, from Taleb, it is critical that it is not just that the books of the ancients are still around and have been filtered by Lindy, But those populations who read them have survived as well. While our knowledge of physics was not available to the ancients, human nature was. and So that's exactly what we're doing here, which is to study from the ancients and study what is Lindy. I think that the big idea here is that these ideas aren't new. Human nature isn't changing. So whatever common wisdom we've heard in the past, it's because... They're not new, and most often what we do hear consistently time and time again are probably old ideas, just repackaged. And Taleb even gives out a lot of these principles from psychology and his own ideas that he's written books about have come through the histories. And so a couple examples. This idea of skin in the game that we're studying right now started with the Yiddish proverb, you cannot chew with somebody else's teeth. Or another proverb, your fingernail can best scratch your itch. The notion of time discounting, a bird in the hand is better than 10 on the tree. And so time discounting is the basis of all investing. Loss aversion principle, uh, which is common in psychology, men feel good less intensely than bad, which is from a proverb. Uh, It's not entirely clear, but it comes from Levy's Annals. And Taleb also lays out the case that all of Seneca's letters have some element of loss aversion. But anyway, the point being that a lot of these ideas aren't new. They're just old ideas that continue to be repackaged time in, time out. And there's a lot of value that comes in studying ideas that are timeless and from sources that are the origin points. Okay, what I will do now is end on what I think is. Taleb's last big idea from this book, which is that beliefs are cheap talk and your actions are fundamentally what matter. From the book, it is much more immoral to claim virtue without fully living with its direct consequences. And then Taleb lays out the principle. If your private life conflicts with your intellectual opinion, it cancels your intellectual ideas, not your private life. Further on, virtue is not something you advertise. It is not an investment strategy. It is not a cost cutting scheme. It is not a book selling or, worse, concert ticket selling strategy. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. I thought this section was quite interesting because. This is the first time I've personally heard of what virtue entails, and so this section is called Virtue is about Others and the Collective. From the scaling property, we can safely establish that virtue is doing something for the collective, particularly when such an action conflicts with your narrowly defined interests. Virtue isn't just being nice to people others are prone to care about. So true virtue lies mostly in being nice to those who are neglected by others, the less obvious cases, those people that the grand charity business tends to miss, or people who have no friends and would like someone once in a while to just call them for a chat or a cup of fresh roasted Italian-style coffee. Taleb even lays out that virtue can exist in an unpopular fashion, and particularly Sticking up for the truth, so from Taleb here. Sticking up for truth when, is, when it is unpopular is far more of a virtue because it costs you something, your reputation. If you are a journalist and act in a way that risks ostracism, you are virtuous. Some people only express their opinions as part of mob shaming when it is safe to do so. And in the bargain, think they are displaying virtue. This is not virtue but vice, a mixture of bullying and cowardice. And speaking of the inverse of cowardice, which is courage, Taleb ends on this section called Take Risk. Finally, when young people who want to help mankind come to me asking, what should I do? I want to reduce poverty, save the world. And similar noble aspirations at the macro level. My suggestion is, Number one, never engage in virtue signaling. Number two, never engage in rent-seeking. Number three, you must start a business. Put yourself on the line. Start a business. Yes, take risk. And if you get rich, which is optional, spend your money generously on others. We need people to take bounded risks. The entire idea is to move the descendants of Homo sapiens away from the macro, away from abstract universal aims, away from the kind of social engineering that brings tail risks to society. Doing business will always help because it brings about economic activity without large-scale risky changes in the economy. Institutions like the aid industry may help but they are equally likely to harm. I am being optimistic. I am certain that except for a few, most do end up harming. Courage, uh, in parentheses, for taking courage is the highest virtue. We need entrepreneurs. Talab even lays out the concept of skin in the game within religion and is particularly critical of Pascal's wager. I didn't know too much about Pascal's wager coming into this book but what I gathered from this book is that Pascal's wager is comes from this uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal on the existence of God and the central argument that is that as a rational person you should adopt a lifestyle as if God does exist and that you know if it turns out that God does not exist you only incur a little bit of downside particularly whatever sacrifices you've had to make. But if it turns out that God does exist, then you, you stand to gain a lot more. And so the wager being live in congr- congruence as if God does exist because you have a lot more to gain than you have to lose. But Taleb lays out the argument that that's an incorrect way of looking at it. And so from the book, the main theological flaw in Pascal's wager is that belief cannot be a free option. It entails a symmetry between what you pay and what you receive. Things otherwise would be too easy. And further on. Love without sacrifice is theft. This applies to any form of love, particularly the love of God. And we end on the idea of beliefs being cheap talk. If you recall at the beginning of the book, we talked about and we learned about the differences between stated preferences, which is what you say, and revealed preferences, which is what you do, and so from the book. You will not have an idea about what people really think, what predicts people's actions, merely by asking them. They themselves don't necessarily know. What matters in the end is what they pay for goods, not what they say they think about them, or the various possible reasons they give you or themselves for that. And so that is Taleb laying out the argument that beliefs are cheap talk. Furthermore, how much you truly believe in something can be manifested only through what you are willing to risk for it. So let me finish this book with a long maxim, via negativa style. And remember that via negativa is a principle that we know what is wrong with more certainty than what is right, and that it is better to remove than it is to add, particularly in complex systems where we just don't know or can predict with a degree of precision on the effects. And so from the book and from the maxim, No muscles without strength, friendship without trust, opinion without consequence, change without aesthetics, age without values, life without effort, water without thirst, food without nourishment, love without sacrifice, power without fairness, facts without rigor, statistics without logic mathematics without proof teaching without experience politeness without warmth values without embodiment degrees without erudition militarism without fortitude progress without civilization friendship without investment virtue without risk probability without er- ergodicity wealth without exposure, complication without depth, fluency without content, decision without asymmetry, science without skepticism, religion without tolerance, and most of all, nothing without skin in the game. And that concludes Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb. If you're new, thank you for joining me in this journey to pick up wisdom from timeless books, timeless ideas, timeless individuals. I continue to learn through this effort of doing this. I hope to continue to bring out my, my own perspective and my own voice through this effort. But thank you again for joining me.